You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. So glad that you are here this morning of all days and you're really early. It's only 9.35. I've got a long time to preach, so uh, I appreciate you being here so early today. Um, do want to say uh, congratulations and welcome aboard to our new Dickens, John Bart, Ben Grumbach, Ben McGuire, Jason Woodall. This is their first official Sunday as Deacons. Uh, yeah. We'd like for you four to meet immediately after the service. We've got a long list for you. Uh, to, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. They're all serving like crazy anyway. And as David said, next Sunday morning begins Grace Connection. Look, for four weeks, we're going to talk about what we believe, uh, the personality of our church, why we do things the way that we do. We're going to talk about elder rule. Elder rule's uh, different for a lot of people. So... What's that all about? We're going to talk about that in the class and opportunities to serve. Um, one of the things that we want you to know if you're just considering grace or you're looking at other churches uh, is that we, we, we take what we do seriously. As I said, I think last week, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, but we take what we do seriously. And we want you to be a, 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 an all-in part of of the ministry, if this is the place you have determined that God wants you to be. So this does not commit you to anything, this four weeks of Grace Connection, but you will get to know about our church and why we think of ourselves as a family and how that family life is lived out, especially through uh, home groups. Um, one of the great blessings that this family has is this building. David mentioned the, the form that we have, the pledge form in the bulletin. Look, it, it, if you're relatively new here, then you might think, man, you guys talk about money a lot. Actually, we really don't talk about money a lot. It, it just so happens we've been talking about it a lot lately. And if that is troublesome to you, then please understand. Just give it some time. You don't have to be involved in this. Uh, David and Neil and I are a part of a, a, of a Bible institute that's starting up in Fuquay this, this fall. We're really excited about it, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that. The elders are aware. Um, but we, the three of us, met with a couple of pastors yesterday morning, and I thought about it last night. They had to set up this morning. They've got to tear down schools, businesses, you know, where they're meeting. And we used to have to do that every Sunday right across the street where Church Alive is meeting now, but we don't have to anymore. This place is quite a blessing. Oh, there's some of that going on during the week. Uh, but still, this is our facility, and it's time for us to get it paid off. There's so many reasons we need to be ready for whatever God is doing next here at Grace Community Church. So um, please just ask the Lord I know that those of you who were involved in the original campaign some 12 years ago or so, 13, 14 years ago, you're, I'm sure you're giving. I know that, I just know you, I know some of you are giving. I, I don't see the records, I don't have any idea, unless you tell me what you're giving or not giving, and I don't want you to. I don't know. I don't know. But those of you especially who have been blessed coming here, this is a great opportunity for you to, to get involved. And I, I did want to say... Um, about this too. I really like the concept. Used to hear a lot about it for missions. We can certainly apply this principle for our building. It's like a faith promise. If you just put a number out there, just pray about it. And if the Lord says $500, put it down and, and, and commit to give it if God brings it in. Now, over and above what you've got coming in, and, or if you've got the ability to give it, do it. Or a thousand, or whatever it is, a hundred a month, fifty a month, ten a month. Students, please, please, please get involved in this. It's it, it's not the amount. Second Corinthians eight says it's not the amount that we give. It's the faithful, loving commitment of people whose hearts have been touched by God to get together and do something. 
something special in the kingdom. That goes for regular giving and for extra giving. But on this extra, just think about an amount, commit to it, and then ask the Lord to bring it in. And then if you make that commitment and instead of giving, you have a boat sitting outside, you're in trouble. That's all I got to say. (laughs) Just kidding. I'll let the Lord deal with that. And I'll go fishing with you next week. No, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I don't even like the fish. So anyway, all of that, all of that. Uh, maybe I'm kind of stalling uh, because this message today, some of the songs may have seemed a little strange to you today. David always chooses songs related to the text. This is one of those texts that uh, requires a lot of explanation, more than just looking at it. And saying, what does exactly, what's he talking about? Isaiah, in the second uh, part, or the second chapter, in the first part of the second chapter, is looking way out into the future, both to the time of and after Christ, and then to the time when Jesus comes back another time. Last week, during our worship, Pastor David said that many Isaiah scholars, having studied the book and written about it extensively. If you really want to learn a subject, write about it and teach it. That's when you really start. But even after doing that, it's like, ah, there's a whole lot I don't know about this book. So you can imagine how uh, some of us feel diving into these deep and murky waters of Isaiah that all of a sudden explode into these beautiful, crystal clear pools that are unrivaled in creation, but in fact point to our creator, redeemer, Jesus, some 700 years before he was born, although obviously not before he was existed. Now, it may be that you're thinking that last sentence, which was about a paragraph and a half long, I think it was, uh, was itself murky. And even though you caught a little bit about what was said, it's like it's going to be really good, you're not exactly... Well, now you have Isaiah. That's like a kind of Isaiah. Uh, I, I will tell you, today is going to be some deep waters. It, some of you know this stuff. You know all of it. And you won't have any trouble at all. But it's going to be deep waters for some of you. I, I, I'm going to say this to you. The purpose for today is to continue laying this foundation. When we get into Isaiah, when we really got, get moving in Isaiah... We want to just keep going at a pretty good clip, but unless we have this foundation, it's going to be hard to understand. I'm not really sure how this applies to me today. So um, it's going to be groundwork. For instance, as a prophet, who was Isaiah writing and prophesying to? Was he prophesying to his generation or, as we know, three or four generations beyond him? When he sees them in Babylon in captivity? Or was he prophesying about Jesus? Or about this time in life uh, as believers who have looked past to Jesus' death and resurrection but also look forward to his second return? Or is he talking about his second return and afterwards? Well, the answer to that is yes. He's talking about all of it. And you have to kind of understand how the prophecy works for it to make sense. It's like I said in our study of Hebrews, the fog clears behind you. That's what my Greek professor told me. He said, you don't get, told all of us, he said, maybe you don't get today's lesson, but, but I bet you get last week's and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But last week we were in the fog, you know, and as we go, the fog kind of goes with us and you feel like you're in the fog the whole time, but it's clearing behind you. You don't have to go back very far before it starts to make sense. So even if it doesn't, fully makes sense today, hang in there, it, the fog clears behind you. A few weeks ago, uh, when Isaiah 1 was our text, the title of the message was Good News and Bad News. Judgment and redemption are two primary themes that we'll find repeatedly overlapping and informing each other in Isaiah. Another way of looking at these two themes is to think about law and gospel. That's a very helpful Rubric for understanding scripture. It's a, it, 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 it's a good way of looking at all of scripture, law and gospel. As the New Testament reminds us often, the law, while it reflects God, while it tells 
us how his people are expected to live, how all humanity is expected to live, uh, it can't give life. It can only condemn because if you fail to keep the law in one port point, you're guilty of the whole thing. You know, if I ask you, did you speed a little bit coming over to work today? Yeah. And then I would say, well, you're, you know, you're as guilty as a murderer. Hey, what are you talking about? But when you're standing next to a holy God, that's the way it works. He has a standard, and the standard is perfection, and we have to keep it at that level. So the law can only condemn. The law that God gave to the Israelites through Moses required this standard of perfection, and since it couldn't be met, God's righteous wrath. You're, you're going to have to, if, if you're ever going to really understand Scripture, you're going to have to be okay with that language. God's righteous wrath required a sacrifice and a sacrifice of blood. And so this whole system was set up. Animals' blood was spilled to cover the sins of the people temporarily. But the sacrifices had to be continually practiced because the people never could achieve that standard. It's like, they, you know, you, you get close and then you don't make it. As a holy God, sin had to be judged. And since all men and women are sinners by nature, something needed to be done on a more permanent basis, which is why Jesus came to die. It's the message of the gospel, and it provides the answer to the problem of relationship between a holy God and sinful people. If that's going to happen, something has to be done. I'll frequently, frequently, frequently too, uh, but frequently remind you that in Isaiah... There's much more bad news than there is good. Although the good is wonderful news beyond anything that we could have see, uh, conceived. Isaiah points to Jesus and the gospel. One of the reasons for the preponderance of the bad news in Isaiah is because Jesus had not come yet. And part of the purpose of the Old Testament is to show us we are incapable of living according to the law. They were living under the law. And while they were saved, we'll talk a little more about this today. They were saved in the same way we are by believing the promises of God. Although we believe in Jesus, they just believe the promises of God that he was good to them. And if they trusted him, he would save them. Even so, to live according to the law was to indicate that there was something really going on in your heart or to have a desire to live according to the law. And repenting when you fail, it just showed they love the Lord. Um, it's the same way for us today. When we're saved, anybody who says, look, look, man, I'm, I'm saved. Just don't bother me. It really doesn't matter how I live my life. That's, that's not a very good indicator of something that, that real has happened in his or her heart. Uh, if we belong to Jesus, we want to live like him. We want to live according to the law that he uh, established, <clears throat> except for the parts that have been done away with. We want to live in harmony and also uh, loving others more than we love ourselves. And those are things that give evidence of our faith uh, in Christ. The prophet Isaiah preached judgment because the people, even though they participated in religious activities, lived as if God didn't even exist. And, and worse, they, they worshipped other gods, other idols, instead of Yahweh, who was their God, their creator, their redeemer, their provider, their protector. Well, today's text is Isaiah 2, 1, and I did, this shows you the conflict. I was going to go all the way through 3.15, not all the way, but just that was going to be our text for today, but I whittled it down to Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, uh, and the title of the message will need a little bit of explanation. Great news, bad news, wonderful news, best news. Uh, it points to the gospel, and it will be explained along the way. The gospel presentation of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I'll explain as we go, but it's time to get to our text. So if you would, please stand for the reading of Scripture, Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. 
The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall dispute for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light. Of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire as the people of God. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, Father, shine the, the light brightly today. And may we see the image upon which it is shown that of Jesus. And may our hearts be drawn to him. And may we desire to be like him that others may see. And also be drawn to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So already, not yet. That's the life we live as believers. The kingdom Has the kingdom come? Yes, the kingdom has come to our hearts. The kingdom has come in our midst as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. But the kingdom has not come to this earth in such a way that Jesus rules on earth as he does in heaven. That time is yet future. Um, Jesus came, died for sins, and those who believe in him are his children, are his brothers and sisters. They are the children of the Lord. Jesus died, rose again, ascended back to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God praying for us. Praying for all who live in this kingdom that is in direct opposition, opposition to the kingdom of the world. One day, Jesus will return in judgment and salvation. His kingdom will be fully established as it was intended to from the beginning of creation all over the earth. So, already, not yet. That's for believers in these New Testament days. And it makes scripture a little bit... Not tricky, but you just have to be aware of that when you're, when you're reading the New Testament. So you have to add layers when you go to the Old Testament. Because we're the prophets speaking for now, a little bit down the road about Jesus, his birth, his death, resurrection. And again, all of those things, even all the way into the future when swords are beaten in the plowshares and there is no war anymore on the earth. In Isaiah... Two, verses 2 to 5. The prophet is looking both to, 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 to the time on earth after Jesus' resurrection and also to the time when Jesus will come a second time to establish the fullness of his kingdom on earth. From Isaiah's perspective, he wanted God's covenant people to live according to God's design for them. When God created us, he had a plan for us and it went well until... Adam and Eve disobeyed until they said, we're not going to do this any longer. We're going to do it our way, not your way. So let's take a moment to think about the flow of history. And, and one way to present the gospel through this, this structure of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're witnessing to someone, this is a great pattern to follow. There are lots of different ways that we share Christ. And do know this. When you're sharing Christ with someone, it's rare that you get to share it all at the same time. It's just little bits and pieces. We hear the gospel in bits and pieces. It takes a period of time usually for someone to hear before they can understand well enough to believe. God created a perfect universe. That's hard for us to see and then not so hard at all. We see the beauty of creation and we're amazed at what the, 
the God of heavens has done in his world and in his universe and so far beyond. After each day in Genesis 1, where we read the creation account, God said these words, or the words were said, God saw that it was good. After he created man and woman, he looked at everything that he had created and said, it is very good. This is often the part of the gospel message that so many of us neglect, preferring instead to go straight to, we're all sinners, we're all headed for judgment, you better get saved or else you're in big trouble. We're all sinful, we need a savior. It's good though to first point out that we're all made in God's image. Although we tend to segregate according to race and personality and culture and nationality and and, and lines that are drawn, God made us as one and one day we will be one again completely. Although in Christ, all those barriers are broken down and we are one in Jesus. The thing that separated us from God and from one another was Adam's sin. When all peoples, all nature, all creation fell under God's curse. All murders, all thefts, all car crashes, all cancer, all flunk tests, all floods and tornadoes, all the bad things that happen to people are the result of the fall. Therefore, All creation, all human beings, apart from Christ, are under a curse. That's a harsh word, isn't it? A curse. Conjures all kinds of things up in your mind. You know, I put a curse on you, I put a hex on you, and you better, you know, life's going to be tough for you. And sure enough, bad things start to happen, and you're thinking, man, that would... Can you imagine being under the curse of God? Imagine it. We are under God's curse. Why such a harsh word? God is holy. We're sinful. And as much as we want to declare, that's not fair. We know that as creator, he gets to declare what's fair and what's not. Right? Furthermore... Do you really deep down want a God who sees life just exactly like you do? Who calls the shots exactly the way that you would if you were in his position? Well, we do think that way sometimes, but it's because we're part of a fallen world and we possess a fallen human nature. God, to deal with the sin that man has, called Abraham... (coughs) To be the father of a people that would be his treasured possession. God made a covenant with Abraham and with those who would come from Abraham's line. Who would be a part of Abraham's line. And said, I love you and I'm going to take care of you no matter what happens. Even if you mess up, my covenant with you is firm. It's committed. Some 430 years later, uh, God gave the law... To Moses. And he said now. My people who are. Into the millions now. Now my covenant people. Here's your side of the bargain. Here's what you've got to keep. In order for us to stay connected. Well he gave them the law. And again if you you break one point. You're guilty of all. There's no way you can do it. No one is capable. And so we're all under the curse of the law. The good news of the gospel, you know this, I know you do, but again, I hope you'll see why I'm laying this foundation. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus suffered our punishment on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and absorbing God's righteous wrath against sin so that those who acknowledge or repent of their sin believe that Jesus died in their place. Those people will be made right with God. Maybe... The best question in a witnessing encounter that anybody ever asked me was, okay, I've got one. I've got one for you. Answer this. Why did Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm like, thank you for asking me to share the gospel. Because God turned away from Jesus in wrath 
pouring out his wrath upon Jesus that really should have gone toward you and me. I hear people say things like, Jesus suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell on the cross. I got no problems with that theologically. Imagine what those six hours were like on the cross for him. With the wrath of God being poured out. God redeems his people through Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a sign that God said, I accept your sacrifice. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. One day, when Jesus returns for the second time, all wrongs will be righted. We will have gone from creation to fall to redemption, all the way to restoration. All rights, uh, all wrongs will be righted. That's what Isaiah 2, 1 to 5 is all about. But before we get there to look at Isaiah, a few minutes in Galatians 3 will help us make sense of the text and how God relates to it. It's covenant people in the Old Testament, covenant people in the New Testament, how it all fits together. In Galatians 3, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was saved the same way we are. He believed God. We understand God's plan of redemption through Jesus in ways that Abraham never could, of course. There's no way he would look for people say, well, the Old Testament saints were looking forward to Jesus. No, they weren't. They didn't know about it. It just didn't make any sense to anybody when Jesus went to the cross. They didn't understand how is this a part of God's plan. They couldn't understand. But God was looking forward to the cross. And he said, just trust me. I hope you're getting that. More than anything else, more than anything else in your life, God wants you to just trust him. Well, I don't. I don't, I can't, what is this? Just trust him. What are you trying to teach me? To trust me. But this doesn't make sense. Exactly, trust me. Just trust me. That's what Abraham did. God promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. Galatians tells us that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 was God's way of saying that Gentiles would be included into the category of God's covenant peace people. People talk about replacement theology, that the church has replaced the Jews. Kind of a pejorative term. It's just the way we are. Everything has got to be so polemical, so we, we just fight with each other, you know, all the time. Oh, you believe in this, you believe in that. I'm telling you, Paul is saying that the scriptures foresaw that the Gentiles with faith would become Abraham's children. We are part of the covenant people of God. Galatians 3, 7 says that it is those of faith who are the true children, the true sons and daughters of Abraham. And then verse 9 confirms it. Remember, as we study Isaiah, God was speaking to his covenant people. And we benefit as God's covenant people from what Isaiah said to the Jews. Galatians 3, 10 through 12 shows us the consequences of the fall. And also the futility of trying to rectify our, our situation by keeping the law. Okay, I'm going to... How many of you, how many of you were saved after you were 16 years old? All right, that's not, not, not a ton of us, but enough of us. I'm going to guess that almost every one of you, before you got saved, thought multiple times, you know, I'm going to clean my life up and then I'm going to come to God. Can't do it. it. It doesn't work that way. You cannot make yourself right with God by just cleaning your act up. He's got to be the one doing the cleaning. You've heard about people saying that they want to redeem themselves. All right, I've made a big mistake. I'm going to redeem myself. When it comes to our relationship with God, there's nothing we can do to justify or redeem ourselves. We can never pay for our sins, nor be, can we be good enough to attain eternal life. Now, it's true that we redeem ourselves in one another's eyes because we're all sinful and we kind of give each other a break. And so we say things like, he messed up, but he's redeemed himself. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord that, that, that what we've done in the past does not have to define us in the eyes of other people. It can. I mean, in the back of their mind, they've got it there until they mess up royally. And then they'll maybe be a little more merciful. But we can't redeem ourselves before God. When you have sinned against the holy God, you are cursed. But the good news begins in Galatians 3.13 and beyond that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see it? Do you see this big picture that God was doing? How he designed for all of us who, if we had been alive at the time that Isaiah was written, would have been completely outside the covenant people of God. Isaiah is constantly telling the Jewish people, now look, it's not just you. God wants people from all nations to come. Just as we're going to read about to the mountain of the Lord and receive salvation. We will get to Isaiah 53 directly, as my grandfather used to say. You ever hear that term? We'll get there directly. That's what he told me. I'd say, granddaddy, let's go up to the store. Let's go up to Mr. Rufus's. He said, oh, we'll go directly. And we always did. And, and we'll get to Isaiah 53. For now, we have the promise. And by the way, Isaiah 53 gives probably the clearest description of what was going on on the cross as any place in the Bible. Just about any place. There are some other places, Romans 3, Galatians 3, that have a lot to say about that. But, but Isaiah 53 is amazing. For now, we have the promise that all peoples of all races can be blessed through faith in Christ. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I, I would like to believe this stuff, but I'm just not sure. I mean, if God would just give me a sign. But Scripture, God doesn't work that way. Scripture tells us it's not show me and I'll believe, but it's believe me and I will show you. You've got to take that step of faith. You've got to say, okay, I see it here. Does it make sense? But I believe it. And then God will begin to reveal himself to you in ways that will blow your mind. So far this morning, we have recovered. We have covered, my goodness. We have covered. I'm going to need to recover after this sermon. So are you. It is daylight savings time, right? Worst day of the year. We have, well, it's a Sunday, so that's good. Let's pray. <laughs> Even before we get to Isaiah. Uh, we've covered the great news of creation. God made us in his image, Imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. We've been given life in this amazing creation. There are a lot of people who don't know God who say, I am so thankful to be alive. But we also have covered the bad news of the fall. Sin has separated us from God and we are cursed for eternity. Unless there's more news than there is wonderful news of redemption. Christ shed blood on the cross on our behalf is exceptional news indeed. The best news though, the best news is that one day all creation will be restored to its original state. We, what will make the new heavens and the new earth even better than the Garden of Eden, Eden is it will be singing the song of the redeemed. Now, does this make sense? When we try to bring utopia on earth, when it's our goal to bring this earth into a perfect place, not being God, we get a little confused about things. And if I am absolutely convinced, though, that this is the way the entire world should live, 
and you disagree with me, well, there's something, prob- there's something wrong with you, and I need to correct you, and I need to show you, and if you, if you refuse to see, then I'm going to have to hurt you. I'm sorry. It's for the good of humanity. See, we don't belong in the role of God trying to... Utopian impulses always end in violence. We have to be careful to understand that it's going to be perfect, but God, Jesus is going to make it that. And then we will enjoy a life and a world free of pain, free of poverty, free of racism, of sexism, free of accidents, free of assaults of any kind, free of war, and most of all, free from sin, our own and everyone else's sin. No sin anywhere in this new creation that Isaiah is writing about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Let's think about it a little bit. And by the way, look, I think those of us who tend to be aware that history is replete with examples of the the notion of utopia not working, we, we tend to then step back and say, well, then we don't have to worry about a thing. We do have to worry about everywhere in Scripture we're called to... To, to live as though other people are just as important as, as us. And we are to bring justice. We are to never accept a bribe or look on someone because he has money and say, and say, oh, he's innocent. It's these people's fault over here. Nor are we to look on someone who has nothing and say, oh, look, it doesn't matter. He's got a lot. Let's just rule against him in this lawsuit. And you, Scripture condemns that just as much as it does the other. It condemns it all. All injustice. It's a problem with us. We're imperfect and we're constantly trying to, to make it fit. But I can tell you one day we're going to give an account of how we treat other people. We cannot dare let ourselves be content with letting people suffer when we can do something about it. Whenever we're tasked with leading people to be better than they already are, whether it be raising children, coaching a team, leading a company, a small group of people, a Bible study, we often will use both positive and negative motivations to accomplish the goal. I mean, we'll tell them how great will life, life will be if they can just live, to learn to live beyond their potential. And we'll tell them how miserable life will be if they live below the standard. This dual motivation tactic is evident everywhere in Scripture. We're warned about the consequences of our sin, and we're promised a future life that is so good, it ought to motivate us to live according to kingdom principles right now. Isaiah tells us in verse 2 that he is referring to what's going to happen in the latter days. Most translations say last days, although some say future days. We know in the New Testament that the writers consider all the time after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and Pentecost, we're living in the last days (coughs) already. (coughs) When you say, I'm telling you, things are getting bad, we're living in the last days, you're right, and you've been right for 2,000 years. We've, We've been living in the last days since the time of Christ. Um. So now, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 applies at some level to life in this day for believers, for God's covenant people. But in addition to redemption, our text points to the time of restoration as as well. So let's break it down. In verse 2, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. It's pretty interesting imagery, isn't it? The, the, the rivers are flowing upstream <clears throat> like rivers. The people are coming and they're flowing up the hill <clears throat> to the Lord. So what, to what is Isaiah referring when he speaks of the mountain of the house of the Lord? He's talking about the temple, isn't he? But this is a good example of why it's important to interpret the Old Testament by the truth of the New Testament. It is our understanding that Jesus fulfilled all that the temple stood for and required and thus 
Jesus is the temple <clears throat> to which all the nations will flow. Now that, you might, if you have a certain view on eschatology, you might say, wait, 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 just a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's think about that for just a little bit. Let's do. In John 2, uh, after he had cleansed the temple, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking to Pharisees, Sadducees. He was talking to all the religious rulers of the day. The temple was such a symbol of national pride and unity. Jesus cleansed the temple. They said, what, what sign do you give us for doing this? How could you dare do this? And he says, hey, destroy this temple. Three days, I will raise it up. They're, they weren't impressed with his answer. And they're like, 46 years it took to build this thing. Really? Three days? Come on. Well, they knew better. They knew that surely he was saying something symbolic, but that doesn't matter. If you've got a point to make, make your point. Make the other person look stupid. Well, in the end, we know where the last laugh came, although it's probably not best to think of it in that way. Oh, look, God sits in the heaven and heavens and laughs. There's a lot about God that doesn't fit our, 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 our preconceived notions about him. But Jesus said, essentially, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And then in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus is talking to him. They're talking about the importance of the temple. He said, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you something. Something greater than the temple is here in your midst. <clears throat> then in John 2, after he had cleansed the temple, uh, I'm sorry, John 4, he's talking to the lady at the well in Samaria. And we read this. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in, in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we knew, do know. For salvation is from the Jews or from God's covenant people. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Worship is not going to be confined to a place. The temple was a place of sacrifice and worship. And in Jesus' death, all need, all requirement for the temple was completed. From that time on, all God's blessings are located only in Jesus. And we interpret Isaiah accordingly. In verses 2 to 3, all the people will flow to the temple in Jerusalem. In the latter days, with Jesus as the one who fulfills the law, the Sabbath, the feast, and in whom all the sacrifices of the temple were ended, all people who are drawn to the Lord will come to Jesus, even as the good news of Christ goes out. To all the world. How does it go out to all the world? We take it to all the world. If all nations, think about it, if all nations must come to the mountain of the Lord to worship the one true God, then there's only one way to heaven that is through Christ. There's no salvation apart from Jesus. The church functions, functions like the temple in that we go to the house of the Lord in order that we may be taught his way so that we will walk in his path. In verse 4, uh, we move from the latter days in which the kingdom of God has partially come through Jesus to the last day, the day of the Lord when Jesus will return in judgment and salvation to establish his kingdom over a world in which all nations are at peace with one another. All nations, all people get along. Although the words of, uh, of, of Isaiah 2-4, these words of peace are found on a wall across from the United Nations. We are no closer to peace than we have ever been. We're not as close to war as we have been many times. You may think we are. But war can strike, can, can, can crop up at any moment because of our pride of the ways that we desire control and domination over other people. 
Jesus implied that wars and rumors of wars would continue until the end of time. So you would think that Isaiah 2.4 is referring to Jesus' second coming. And you would be right. Although there is contemporary application for God's people as well. Alec Mott, your scholarly translation says, And he will set things to right, rights between the nations. That's the way he translates it. He will set things to rights between the nations. Since Cain and Abel, people and nations have gone to war against each other because of pride, as Isaiah is going to lay out in, in very graphic uh, detail in the, in, in the rest of chapter 2. Um, so he does so, though, after this brilliant word of hope. When Jesus returns, our hope will be made sight. Then all of those things that we desire that we so desperately want in our world today will be true. If we keep our eyes on him in this time of distress and conflict, the Lord will deliver us from the spirit of the age. And that is the bad stuff on all sides. It is in view of such an understanding, perhaps, that James K.A. Smith said this. And now we're going to get something a little bit easy. After this complicated message. Heaven help our politics. God save us from the hubris of our own machinations. When we lose our eschatological hope, we absolutize the temporal. It's the resulting politics of pretension that polarizes us. Finally, something easy. Look, (laughs) you're probably thinking, what did he say exactly now? What, What are you talking about? If it weren't important, I wouldn't have put it up. I promise you. Uh, and by the way, you, if, you, if you think you figure out where this guy lands politically, you probably don't know. David and I know. We, Beth knows. Some others of you know. But probably a lot of you don't know where he lands. So just take it for what it's at, for what it is. He, he, he's saying, he's offering a prayer that God will deliver us from ourselves, from our political plotting and scheming that is almost always designed for our own good rather than the good of others. He's also reminding us when we lose sight of the day that is talked about in Isaiah 2 when all swords are just beaten down into farm tools because we don't need them anymore for war. If we lose sight of that day, then we begin to think of those things that are just temporary as having and being of eternal consequence. And so when something is eternal, we we come to despise each other across national boundaries or across the political aisles. Rather than loving those who are different from us, in some ways, and are made in the image of God, we simmer and stew and fight and destroy. Are we immune in the church? No. That's why Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 5, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one. Isaiah was talking to a people that took advantage of each other. They they, um, despised and fought against each other. They, They looked to other gods. They looked to other nations to deliver them. When God was saying, trust me, and if you trust me, you'll understand what the law was about. Love your neighbor as yourself. In view of who God has made you to be, Brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church, through love, serve one another. Isaiah's way of saying that to God's people is found in Isaiah 2.5. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. A glorious day is coming, he was saying. A day of, of, of hope and a day of restoration, a day of reparation, everything will be made right. Live in the light and in the hope of that day. And as we anticipate the day when God will have restored creation to its original state, and Jesus reigns supreme, 
As we think about that day, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Be encouraged as we close with these words from Tim Keller. David uh, actually said some of this in a prayer. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. That makes sense? When we get to heaven, God, this God of symmetry, you think you've really got it bad here? You're going to have it really great in heaven. That's not, you know, uh, an encouragement for you to say, man, I just hope life gets bad here so I can really enjoy it there. But if it's bad, whatever's bad here will be that much better in heaven. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Kind of what Isaiah was saying. Let's pray. Father, um, your word is very simple and very complex all at the same time. God, there is nothing simple about you. You are complex beyond anything we could comprehend, much less explain or live accordingly. But we do know how deeply you love us and that all things that are done for your glory in the end, are in our best interest. You're just that way. You've designed it that way. And so, Lord, in a day when we long for peace among the nations, among the peoples, if we could just get along with our neighbors, for goodness sake, and other church members, well, Lord, that's what you've called us to. And we pray (laughs) That our hearts would fill with joy even as we know that we're not there, but we believe at the levels that cause us to give praise to you for what has been done and what will be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.